The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Why should we still care about William Wordsworth today? Because he reminds us that we need to care for our children and to cherish a child's way of looking at the world. Because he wrote with unprecedented sympathy for the poor, the excluded, and the broken. Because his poetry has been, for many, and can still be for some, a medium of solace and an oasis of calm in a noisy and stressful world even a medicine for mental illness. Because his elegiac poetry can speak to us when we are bereaved, because he expressed humankind's longing for the infinite and our sense of something far more deeply interfused, the oceanic feeling of oneness with the world, in a way that was not dependent upon religious dogma. Because he changed the way that we perceive, inhabit, and preserve the wilder places of the natural world. But above all, on our fragile planet and with our uncertain ecological future, because at the very beginning of the industrial era that scientists have christened the Anthropocene, William Wordsworth foresaw that among the consequences of modernity would be not only the alienation of human beings from each other, but also, potentially, irretrievable damage to the delicate balance between our species and our environment. We preserve the things that we value. We will not save that which we do not love. And with this in mind, we might do well to attend to the title of the eighth book of Wordsworth's long poem, The Prelude, which is Retrospect, Love of Nature Leading to Love of Mankind. Now this comes from Jonathan Bates' biography of William Wordsworth. It's called Radical Wordsworth, and it's an incredible book, and I want to spend tonight going through bits and pieces of it to answer that question even more than Jonathan Bates already did. Why should we still care about William Wordsworth today? And I think the answer in there also, uh, the other answer that we can find is why should we still care about poetry today? What is the kind of poetry that we can still care about today and which, who knows, people 200 years from now might also still care about? The important dates to know in the life of Wordsworth, born in 1770, died in 1850. He was present for part of the French Revolution in the early 1790s. But he returned to England and he spent most of the rest of his life there, even though he did to go on uh, various trips. And the great meeting with Samuel Taylor Coleridge happened in 1798. And together they published uh, the Lyrical Ballads, which included poems by the, by the two of them. There was a second edition of Lyrical Ballads in 1800. And I believe between that time, or the late 1790s and 1805, Wordsworth wrote his 13-book uh, epic of his own mind called The Prelude, although he never published it in his lifetime, and it wasn't published until after his death, I believe in the 1860s or 1870s, and by then he had spent 50 years revising it. And most editions that you see of The Prelude today uh, are of the 1805 edition, which is considered the best one. In 1807, he published poems in two volumes, and most critics and most lovers of poetry will say, 1797 to 1807, that is the best poetry that Wordsworth ever wrote, and perhaps some of the best poetry in the English language ever was written by Wordsworth in those 10 years. And for the next 43 years of his life, it is generally agreed that he didn't write very much good poetry at all. And so what I'm also about to share with you tonight from Jonathan Bates' biography 
is just a suggestion as to why there was this huge drop-off. What was the reason for it, and what does it tell us about poetry and creativity in the year 2023? Do we really need to expect a poet or a filmmaker or a painter or a novelist or really anybody we know to be successful their entire lives in whatever they do? Is it so strange to imagine that maybe all of us only really have a good 10 years to get done whatever it is we were put on this earth to do. And so sit back and relax and let's spend the next hour or so talking about William Wordsworth. So in this episode, we'll be looking mostly at Wordsworth's life and not reading a great deal of his poetry. So I thought right at the beginning here, we could just get a tiny sense of his poetry. And this is about 30 lines from book one of the prelude, lines 271 to 304, for anyone who has a copy of it out there. And again, this is the 1805 edition of the prelude, when it is at its best and he hasn't been tinkering with it for four decades. This is how it sounds. Was it for this, that one, the fairest of all rivers, loved to blend his murmurs with my nurse's song, and from his alder shades and rocky falls, and from his fords and shallows, sent a voice that flowed along my dreams? For this didst thou, O Derwent, traveling over the green plains, near my sweet birthplace, didst thou, beauteous stream, make ceaseless music through the night and day, which with its steady cadence tempering our human waywardness, composed my thoughts to more than infant softness, giving me among the fretful dwellings of mankind a knowledge, a dim earnest, of the calm which nature breathes among the hills and groves. When, having left his mountain, to the towers of Cockermouth that beauteous river came, Behind my father's house he passed close by, along the margin of our terrace walk. He was a playmate whom we dearly loved. Oh, many a time have I, a five-years child, an aged boy, in one delightful rill, a little mill-race severed from his stream, made one long bathing of a summer's day, basked in the sun, and plunged and basked again, alternate, all a summer's day, or coursed over the sandy fields, leaping through groves of yellow grunsel, or when crag and hill, the woods and distant Skiddaw's lofty height, were bronzed with a deep radiance, stood alone beneath the sky, as if I had been born on Indian plains, and from my mother's hut had run abroad in wantonness to sport, a naked savage in the thunder shower. Now that gives a great sense of what Wordsworth is able to do with iambic pentameter, with the unstressed, stressed, unstressed, stressed, blank verse uh, line. Of course, he does rhyming poetry very well too, but it seems to be in this blank verse that is where his strength is. And perhaps it's also where his weakness was because he was able to sort of shake these things out of his sleeve almost without thinking about it. Uh, towards the middle and end of his life. But Jonathan Bate asks the wonderful question very early on in his book, what is the difference between what I just read to you and the work of the other blank verse poets that Wordsworth would have known? I'm thinking of James Thompson, that's T-H-O-M-S-O-N, who lived from 1700 to 1748 and who wrote a wonderful uh, blank verse sequence on the seasons and also uh, William Cowper, who lived from 1731 to 1800, and so Wordsworth would have been contemporary with him just before he died. What did he, what makes his poetry different from those two poets, those two nature poets? They were nature poets. It seems that blank verse offers itself to the meditation of thinking about nature and putting yourself into nature, 
And what did he learn from Shakespeare and Milton? Paradise Lost, of course, is blank verse, and generally what Shakespeare gives us in his plays is blank verse as well. And this is what Jonathan Bates says. Uh, Wordsworth acknowledged that William Cowper's long poem, The Task, was a significant precedent for his own project. He described Cowper's work as a composite of an idyllium, which he defined as the observation of the processes and appearance of external nature, a didactic poem offering direct instruction to the reader, as well as a philosophical satire. His own longer works were just such composites. Talking about Wordsworth here. His own longer works were just such composites. But there was a key difference. Thompson and Cowper always proceeded from natural description to moral generalization. Wordsworth, on the other hand, inherited their art of sermonizing about nature, but what he added was a much more individual voice and, above all, a particularity lodged in personal memory. You'll notice that what I just read from, it doesn't say some river, it says Skidaw, or, um, hold on, let me get the name right. It doesn't say some river, it says Derwent. It doesn't say some mountain, it says Skidaw. It doesn't say that it went behind some house, the, the river. It says, went behind my house, and I bathed in the river when I was a child. Um, Cowper, William Cowper, had his local affections, but the perambulations of his poem, The Task, have a generic quality. The poet could be leading the reader through any English field or grove, whereas when Wordsworth begins his epic task, the starting point is specifically the Derwent River of his first home, the alder tree bending into his father's garden, the sound of the river merging into his dreams as he fell asleep as a child, and as he dreams that childhood back into life in the act of writing poetry. The power of the unconscious, as manifested in memories and dreams, the child as father of the man, these are not ideas to be found in the verse of Wordsworth's predecessors. And so the, the important thing seems to be that it isn't simply nature. It is that you, whoever you are out there, is in nature discovering this. And what do you take from it? It's very specific. It's a very specific journey uh, to be going on. And as we'll hear, I think a little later on, this in a way is also a precursor to much of the, you might say, confessional or just autobiographical poetry that gluts the world today. Um, it goes back and forth, doesn't it? It gives birth to genius as well as immensely forgettable stuff. And here, this is a nice description of Wordsworth himself, uh, written by a friend named William Hazlitt. And let's see. Hazlitt remembered his first sight of Wordsworth. He came to visit him in the Lake District in England. He says, A tall, Don Quixote-like figure, quaintly dressed, in a brown fustian jacket and striped pantaloons. There was something of a roll, a lounge in his gait, not unlike his own, <clears throat> not unlike his own Peter Bell. Peter Bell was the protagonist in one of Wordsworth's longer poems. There was a severe, worn pressure of thought about his temples. There was a fire in his eye, as if he saw something in objects more than the outward appearance. An intense, high, narrow forehead, a Roman nose, cheeks furrowed by strong purpose and feeling, and a convulsive inclination to laughter about the mouth. A good deal at variance with the solemn, stately expression of the rest of his face. He sat down and talked very naturally and freely, with a mixture of clear, gushing accents in his voice, a deep guttural intonation, and a strong tincture of the northern burr, like the crust on wine. He instantly began to make havoc of the half of a Cheshire cheese on the table. 
And that's <laughs> that's awfully nice, isn't it? Uh, Wordsworth likes his cheese, and he doesn't feel self-conscious, uh, making a havoc of it uh, in front of friends. Uh, looking out the low latticed window, Wordsworth said, How beautifully the sun sets on that yellow bank. And Hazlitt thought to himself, With what eyes these poets see nature? And forever after, Jonathan Bate writes, uh, Mr. Hazlitt would think of Wordsworth whenever he observed the evening light bouncing off an angled object or a slanting landscape. And it was later on during this, uh, during this meeting that it says this. On this same walk, he explained that the lyrical ballads were an experiment about to be tried by him and Wordsworth. This is Coleridge speaking. The lyrical ballads were an experiment about to be tried by him and Wordsworth to see how far the public taste would endure poetry written in a more natural and simple style than had hitherto been attempted, totally discarding the artifices of poetical diction. And earlier in the book, it mentions that uh, the clipped couplets and the urbane wit of Alexander Pope were falling out of favor. And this might come as a surprise to uh, some of you out there. When you think of romantic poetry, at least I did uh, before I uh, had read much of Wordsworth, what I realized I was thinking of was Shelley and Keats, which is beautiful and, and all the rest, but I don't think you would say it had uh, a natural and simple style. What I read to you right at the beginning here, I think, is the pinnacle of that natural style. Uh, it's amazing that that was written about 220 years ago, and it still just shines brilliantly, whereas there, I'm sure there's a great deal of uh, poetry being written today that is all cluttered about, even if it's not cluttered with um, uh, bad attempts at blank verse or bad attempts at rhyme and meter. You can clutter it up with all kinds of other junk too, and uh, it will have barely been readable for a year. Uh, Wordsworth is still going strong. And if we go to, let's see, let's see what the next section is here. And here we're still talking about um, Lyrical Ballads, which was published in 1798. And this paragraph talks about uh, what was mentioned earlier, Wordsworth's sympathy for the downtrodden. His, his subjects are not kings and high-born people. This is what it says. The first poem by Wordsworth that the reader encounters in lyrical ballads is about a baby abandoned at birth. The two longest of his poems are about, respectively, a Down syndrome boy and a female vagrant. Others are about impoverished old people, a shepherd fallen on hard times, a convict, an old man traveling to a hospital to visit his war-wounded son, and a dungeon that might as well be the Bastille not to mention a, quote, mad mother and a, quote, forsaken Indian woman. To the critic Hazlitt, this subject matter was turning poetry on its head. Gone was the polished wit of Alexander Pope writing satiric rhyming couplets about a lady at a dressing table, or pronouncing urbanely from a coffee house that whatever it is is right. Hazlitt saw that lyrical ballads was nothing less than the English literary equivalent of the French political revolution. That's worth repeating. Lyrical ballads and what Wordsworth was doing was nothing less than the English literary equivalent of the French political revolution. He argued that towards the end of the 18th century, England's poetic, poetical literature had degenerated into the most trite, insipid, and mechanical of all things in the hands of the followers of Alexander Pope and the old French school of poetry. And I have to agree with him there. I've never really been able to get into Alexander Pope. And uh, this is something that Wordsworth, in sort of uh, an advertisement for lyrical ballads, this is what he had to say. Uh, his complaint was that the, quote, gaudiness and inane phraseology, the self-consciously literary language of contemporary verse, set up a barrier between the poet and the people. He detected fakery as opposed to real feeling and just sense in the language of well-to-do poets. 
and he channeled instead his own experience as a homeless wanderer the years after he left at university, an experience so different from that of the typical gentleman poet, writing from the comfort of a vicarage or with the support of an annual income. Instead of verbally portraying the poor in the manner of Dutch genre paintings, he listened to their stories. How about that? He listened to their stories, and he turned their stories into great poetry. And this, this leads into sort of an expansion of what, uh, what I just read. Uh, motherhood, children, death. Wordsworth saw that to bring the three subjects together would be to open the floodgates of feeling, and to do that would return poetry to its primal source. For, in the preface's most famous phrase, the preface to lyrical ballads, all good poetry is the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. All good poetry is the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. Wordsworth believed that the deeper passions and poetry have a natural connection. Metrical arrangement, however rudimentary, is the means of both expressing and ordering all those strong but incohate emotions that are stirred by love and loss. And this is a quotation from Wordsworth right here. He says, the music and harmonious, the music of harmonious metrical language, the sense of difficulty overcome, and the blind association of pleasure, which has been previously received from works of rhyme or meter of the same or similar construction, all these imperceptibly make up a complex feeling of delight, which is of the most important use in tempering the painful feeling, which will always be found intermingled with powerful descriptions of the deeper passions. So this is a great use of poetry, isn't it? It isn't just to, uh, not just the writing of it, but the reading of it. It isn't just to express what you have felt, what you're feeling now, or what you have felt in the past. It is to help you work through that, as we would say nowadays. And the key to that for Wordsworth is that it is written in metrical verse of some kind. Jonathan Bates says, This is literary criticism of the highest order, recognizing that poetry can be a balm, tempering the darker emotions, because it is complex, because its rhythms are as important as its words, and because a fine new poem can bring back the pleasurable memory of a fine older one. The authentic poet must, however, escape the received poetic diction and root out all of the falsehood of description. True poetry, the preface argues, comes from simplicity and sincerity. Where will you hear this in an MFA course today? Perhaps you will, I'm not sure. True poetry comes from simplicity and sincerity. The language of good poetry is no different from that of good prose. The gaudy phraseology and figures of speech traditionally associated with verse writing choke the true voice of feeling. But, I can hear what everyone is saying out there, Wordsworth would not have sought to deny, though, that a great deal of very bad verse does come from the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. The poetry of teenagers in love might come to our minds. Very mindful that raw emotion is not enough, he went on to say that the feelings need to be modified by deep thoughtfulness or habits of meditation, as he says. And indeed, that the best poetry often comes not in the moment of strong feeling, but when an emotion is, quote, recollected in tranquility. And just from that, you, you get the whole key to Wordsworth, almost, is that the, the gist of him is uh, intense emotion, intense, intense feeling, and intense experience. But the poetry comes only when that intensity is being recollected in tranquility, the, the intensity, whether of, uh, of sadness or of joy, doesn't matter uh, what, where that swing goes, but if you recollect it in tranquility, there you are. Uh, Jonathan Bates says, the recollection triggers a process whereby the feeling is reanimated. And for Wordsworth, this is the essence of the creative process. Quote, the emotion is contemplated until by a species of reaction, 
the tranquility gradually disappears, and an emotion, kindred to that which was before the subject of contemplation, is gradually produced, and does itself actually exist in the mind. In this mood, successful composition generally begins, and in a mood similar to this, it is carried on. Jonathan Bates says, a psychoanalyst might compare this to the mechanism that occurs during a talking cure. So that the act of fixing recollection in words has the potential to bring back what Wordsworth would later call the hour of splendor in the grass, of glory in the flower. In this respect, poetry is a way of defying time. The poet thus has a unique and almost sacred calling. What is a poet? Wordsworth asks. And what language is to be expected from a poet? Jonathan Bates says, a poet should speak to all the people. Here. And here we are. Here we're talking more about how strange and how new what we call Romanticism actually was. And how strange and how new, if we're thinking about uh, poetry being the, the taking hold of emotion and intensity, also of delving into autobiography, as I said at the beginning, Wordsworth's power and his distinctiveness from other poets who were writing about nature like him uh, comes from it being not just about nature, but about himself. And so we inevitably come to the prelude which is 13 books about the growth of the poet's mind. And this is what Jonathan Bate has to say about the general feeling in the air around the, in the early 1800s when Wordsworth was working on the prelude. He says, A new form of literature was born when Jean-Jacques Rousseau took it upon himself to share with his readers the story of the growth of his own self not just his spiritual journey in the manner of a long tradition of religious writing that began with St. Augustine's Confessions, but also his loves and fears, his perambulations and his politics, the everyday stuff of his life. Rousseau was perhaps the first to attempt such a thing systematically, and he opened his Confessions, published in 1782, with these words, I have resolved on an enterprise which has no precedent, and which, once complete, will have no imitator. My purpose is to display to my kind a portrait in every way true to nature, and the man I shall portray will be myself." Uh, Jonathan Bate uh, notes his skepticism at this project being entirely original, but we can skip over that to where he says, uh, It is, however, not an exaggeration to say that the first person to attempt a complete self-portrait in verse as opposed to prose, and in English, as opposed to French, was William Wordsworth, in the poem that he read to his wife, his sister, and his sister-in-law, and his friends, between Christmas of 1806 and New Year's of 1807. Wouldn't it be fun to have been in the cottage then, to have heard pretty much the entirety of the 1805 uh, prelude being read out loud by Wordsworth himself. Um, it was, it was, he had written to his patron, Sir George Beaumont, some time before, quote, a thing unprecedented in literary history, that a man should talk so much about himself. Talking about himself, Jonathan Bates says, a cynic might blame Rousseau and Wordsworth for the culture of narcissism that affects our own age. And indeed, that's another thing, isn't it? Uh, Wordsworth is very much with us. He wants you to grasp hold of those intense feelings that you have, whether they are good or bad, negative or positive. He wants you to tell your own story. He could very well be working on poetry right now, but it's important to see what he does with it. Uh, and this is what he says, Jonathan Bates says about 10 pages later, as for self-expression in writing, mere self-expression, the Romantic Epoch can indeed be described as the first age of autobiography and autobiographical literary creation. This was the time when poets and memoirists began writing self-consciously and unapologetically about themselves. 
in the words of François-René Vicomte de Chateaubriand, who came to be regarded as the father of French Romanticism, quote, We are convinced that the great writers put their own story into their works. The only thing that can be painted well is one on one's own heart, ascribed to another, and the best part of genius consists of memories. The best part of genius consists of memories. Of course, there's the remark that I love from Toni Morrison from an episode a while ago, where she says to a creative writing class, uh, you know, you hear every all the time that you should uh, write what you know. But Toni Morrison says, I hate to tell you this, but you don't know anything. Write about what you don't know. Um, so there's the other half of that, too. And there's probably a meeting in the middle where what you're doing is you're writing the thing that you know, but you're attributing it to fictional or, or other characters, and you're able to filter it in that way. But think of all the different ways you can work with that, that the best part of genius consists of memories. What do you do with the memories that you have, whether you hold on to them and grasp them or want to let them go? Uh, Jonathan Bate continues, the the great writers have told their own story in their works. As far as the English language is concerned, it was Wordsworth who was the first to do so with absolute self-consciousness in his autobiographical epic poem. For Chateaubriand, one only truly describes one's own heart by attributing it to another, but Wordsworth pulled off an unprecedented double act in describing his own heart simultaneously by attributing it to himself, the I who speaks so many of his poems, and to others, among them his sister Dorothy, his friend Coleridge, and a vast assortment of observed, observed or invented Lakeland shepherds, vagrants, discharged military personnel, not to mention birds and beasts and flowers, and indeed the very forms of nature, lakes and mountains and clouds. Genius is composed of memories. The words should perhaps have been carved on Wordsworth's grave. And now, let's see, one little remark here about, uh, about Romanticism as a whole. The critic Isaiah Berlin had this to say about the Romantic movement, and I think this stands fairly well for Wordsworth himself, as his place in poetry still is. Isaiah Berlin says this, The importance of Romanticism is that it is the largest recent movement to transform the lives and thought of the Western world. It seems to me to be the greatest single shift in the consciousness of the West that has occurred, and that all the other shifts which have occurred in the course of the 19th and 20th centuries appear to me, in comparison, less important, or at any rate, deeply influenced by it. They wouldn't have been there if not for Romanticism. And Jonathan Bates says this about that. Uh, politically, Romanticism was more of a paradox than a movement. The, quote, new schools of thinking and writing were associated with the idea of revolution, but also with the idea of nationalism with the radical theory of anarchism, but also with the conservative theory of the organic state. A capital R romantic could be a freedom fighter on the streets or a hiker in the mountains. Lord Byron wanted to be both. And among those labeled romantics, there were abolitionists, vegetarians, advocates for women's rights and animal rights, and for what we would now call an environmental ethic. But one did not have to be a romantic poet or novelist to be an abolitionist or a believer in an ever-widening circle of rights. Among the romantic writers we find the simultaneous spirit of atavism and progress, of nostalgia and utopianism, of looking back and looking forward. And this is one reason why I think a few times I've said here is that uh, poets as different as Robert Frost and Galway Cannell and many others that you can think of, uh, still, I don't think, have learned past what Wordsworth was able to accomplish. I don't know what was in the waters 
in the Lake District. I don't know what was in the air generally in England and the continent. The early 1800s, when you're talking about Romanticism as a movement, but I don't think it's such a stretch, and Jonathan Bates says as much, to imagine that that the great poets in English are Shakespeare, Milton, and the next one on the list is Wordsworth, and to think that he was able to do it uh, sitting in his cottage over the course of ten years or so um, is pretty remarkable. And to continue going back to school with him, to read him or just listen to him, is a marvelous thing to be able to do. And just to continue on that line, uh, the, the critic we heard from earlier, uh, William Hazlitt, had this to say in a review, I believe, from around 1815 or so. He says this, uh, William Wordsworth has described all of these objects in a way and with an intensity of feeling that no one else had done before him, and he has given a new view or aspect of nature. He is, in this sense, the most original poet now living, and the one whose writings could be the least spared, because they have no substitute elsewhere. The vulgar do not read them, and the learned, who see all things through books, do not understand them. The great, despite the fashionable, uh, the great despise, the fashionable may ridicule them, but the author has created himself an interest in the heart of the retired and lonely student of nature, which can never die. And that's a, a nice thing to see, too, is that even in 1815, this is very, fairly early on, even as uh, Wordsworth's uh, collected poems that he brought out in 1807 and another edition in 1815, which is, I think, what this, um, where this review comes from, there, there is a slow-growing sense, at least among some people, because I could also spend m much of the episode uh, reading all of the negative reviews, all the mockery and condemnation that Wordsworth got. There is a sense from some, like Hazlitt, that uh, what Wordsworth is doing is indispensable and that it will just take some time for people to see it. The vulgar do not read them. The learned who see all things through books do not understand them. The great despise them and the fashionable ridicule them because his poetry just isn't fashionable. But the ones, uh, those with the heart of the retired and lonely student of nature, those are the ones who get it and those are the ones uh, who will continue to get it, and uh, everybody else will eventually be catching up with it. Let's see what we have here for the next bit. This is a funny bit, too, because if we're talking about that, um, it's also uh, worth having a good example of how great minds do not think alike. Uh, everybody has their biases. Everyone has their their uh, ground that they've staked their reputation on or just put their meaning onto. And one of those other poets who was alive at this time uh, was William Blake. And he read the the introduction that Wordsworth wrote when he published his long poem called The Recluse, where Wordsworth, again, uh, is in praise of nature, basically. And Blake, being the Gnostic and the mystic that he is, has no, uh, has no need for nature as nature, nature as it is. And this is what uh, Jonathan Bates says. Uh, William Blake was a very different sort of visionary and a very different sort of poet, for whom the poetic imagination existed in stark opposition to the physical, which he called the vegetable world. He had no time for Wordsworth's arguments about nature, and he told a mutual friend that reading the preface to that Wordsworth wrote for the excursion gave him a bowel complaint that nearly killed him, and he scrawled in the margin of his copy of the poem, You shall not bring me down to believe such fitting and fitted. I know better and please your lordship. And you wonder if Blake would have felt different if he had been living in the Lake District. And you wonder if Wordsworth would have been would have felt different if he had been the one 
uh, living in London. Uh, but Jonathan Bates says, uh, for William Blake, who was deeply influenced by Gnosticism, the very idea of a separation between mind and the world was a sign of the fall from the original unity of the human and the divine. Nature, according to uh, Blake's estimation, nature was the work of the devil, and he accordingly considered Wordsworth's worship of nature to be a form of atheism. Natural objects always did and now do obliterate imagination in me, William Blake wrote. I see in Wordsworth the natural man rising up against the spiritual man continually, and then he is no poet but a heathen philosopher at enmity against all true poetry or inspiration. End quote from William Blake. Uh, Wordsworth, in turn, said of Blake, though, according to their, to their mutual friend, there is no doubt that this man is mad, but there is something in this madness which I enjoy more than the sense of Walter Scott or Lord Byron. Meanwhile, their other friend, Charles Lamb, took the view that William Blake was actually a mad Wordsworth. They're almost mirror images of each other. They're both such spiritual beings. They both... Uh, want to find this thing uh, in the world or away from it, and it's strange that they wouldn't have been able to shake hands on it and just see that they were looking, each looking through the mirror in a different way. But there you go. Uh, the world is a funny place where people like Wordsworth and Blake, both writing at the peak of their powers, uh, simply don't get one another at all and they don't need to. Let's see. Now this is the, we come to the crux of Jonathan Bates' book. Uh, it's about 500 pages long and it focuses almost entirely on those 10 years, on uh, 1790, uh, 1797 to 1807. And what Jonathan Bates does here is he wonders what happened to Wordsworth's poetry. Uh, can we explain just by the reasons of his life, of his biography, the incidents that were going on at the time, why it was that he wrote such astounding poetry for 10 years, and then for the next 40 or so years, he tinkered around with and sort of ruined the prelude. And the poetry he did write, the other original poetry they did write, isn't all that good. So let's see what Jonathan Bates says about that. He says, what went wrong? It cannot be a coincidence that both Wordsworth and Coleridge started writing their best poetry when they met each other in 1797-1798, and that their verse declined in quality when they had a falling out just about ten years later. And you can read the biography to get a sense of what that falling out was. It can be legitimately argued that, uh, quote, to William Wordsworth, composed on the night after his recitation of a poem on the growth of the individual mind, was Coleridge's last memorable poem, just as it can be argued that after 1806 there passed away a glory from Wordsworth's verse. The rise and fall of the relationship with Coleridge cannot, however, be the whole answer. After all, his sister Dorothy, the third member of the triumvirate, continued to be beside Wordsworth, inspiring him and giving him eyes. There can be no simple answer to the question, but if we take seriously Wordsworth's claim that all good poetry comes from, quote, powerful feelings, a number of other factors become apparent. Wordsworth uncannily anticipates Sigmund Freud in all sorts of ways, and Freud believed that desire and death, eros and thanatos, were the fundamental drivers of human psychology and especially of artistic creativity. So to take Thanatos, the death of Wordsworth's parents when he was a child, the deaths that he witnessed in Paris during the Revolution, the death of his friend Raisley Calvert, which led to the legacy that freed him to write, and the quasi-deaths of his separations from his sister through most of his later childhood, from uh, Annette when he left France, and from his daughter Caroline for the first ten years of her life. So to explain that, uh, when Wordsworth went to France, uh, he did get a woman pregnant, and she had a child, 
and Wordsworth was only able to go back to France now and again to see both the mother and the daughter, and nobody knew about this. It was not public knowledge during his lifetime. Uh, Freud would have said that the powerful feelings generated by these blows were sublimated into the intensely felt poetry of the prelude, the Lucy and the Matthew poems, the ruined cottage, the poem called Michael, and the poems called uh, Resolution and Independence, as well as the Immortality Ode. One thing Jonathan Bate doesn't mention is that in 1812, two of Wordsworth's children died, and there's no sense that he had a sudden influx of poetic power there uh, after the deaths of his children, and perhaps you might say that is an entirely different kind of loss altogether. But as for Eros, uh, for Wordsworth, France, being in France, was a time of bliss, not only because of the revolution and the hope for a better world, but also because he was in love for the first time and making love to Annette. As far as we know, he did not make love to another woman until he married his wife, Mary Hutchinson, ten years later. So that for a man of strong passions to have gone from the age of 22 to that of 32 without having sex could not have been easy. And Freud's analysis might have been that during these years Wordsworth projected his libido into his poetry. Once his desires were fulfilled in marriage, though, the intensity of the rediscovered love letters and the frequency of Mary's pregnancies suggest a very satisfactory sex life, the energy of his poetry was dissipated. And that's a strange thing about uh, love and sex, though, isn't it? Um, on the one hand, uh, being involved in all of it for the first time is something that energizes you. But then, apparently at the same time, having a period where you don't have an outlet for it is also energizing. And then after you get married and you have kids and uh, all the rest of it, um, that also goes from being energizing to not energizing. It's a strange theory, and I don't know how much I buy it, but it's worth reading the way Jonathan Bate puts all of it. Um, and he goes on to say, Could it have been that the price of a quiet life and a happy marriage was the extinction of those sparks of inspiration, moments of vision, spots in time, that had animated the decade between his time in France and the recollection of that time uh, in the reading of the prelude? More mundanely, perhaps he simply just grew tired, he always had trouble sleeping, and by the year 1810, there were five children under the age of seven in the house. Nights would have often been interrupted, and his legs were becoming wearied from all the walking, and he had pains in his sides and in his stomach, headaches and failing eyesight. And besides, he had been writing poetry for so many years that it was just too easy to turn out line after line of pentameter, walking up and down the gravel path in a regular rhythm as a matter of routine rather than of, quote, powerful feeling. And of course, after his brother John's death and then his children's, Catherine and Tommy's, what was there left to say about love and about grief? So he does mention the kids there, and that's another way of putting it. Uh, what is the difference between experiencing death as a child, as Wordsworth did, both of his parents dying, when he was, uh, I believe, when he was eight, around eight or so, and then at the age of 13, and, and then experiencing the death of your own brother and the death of friends as a younger man, but then the vast difference of experiencing the death of two of your own children. Um, perhaps that's right, just from the experience of life, not anything specific, not any one or two things, but what was there left to say about love and about grief? I'm reminded that T.S. Eliot, who was born in 1888, basically stopped writing poetry uh, after Four Quartets, um, which was published in 1942 in his mid-50s. Mid he continued writing verse drama, but I don't think any of that has stood up, and I don't think he wanted it to quite stand up to his to something like The Wasteland or Four Quartets. Maybe Eliot was able to see something that Wordsworth was not. 
that at some point you realize you've said what you needed to say in poetry and you just uh, and you just stop. And there's a wonderful part in Jonathan Bates' book where he imagines um, what if one of Wordsworth's illnesses or what is it? Uh, no, he imagines instead of Wordsworth's brother dying, imagine Wordsworth himself died in 1806 or so, so that what you were left with with Wordsworth was was those ten years, the the two editions of lyrical ballads, the collected poems in 1807, and then he says um, his sisters probably, his sister and his wife probably would have just brought out the 1805 prelude, you know, over the next few years. And the course of English literature would have been changed completely. Um, and we really wouldn't have missed a great deal of the stuff that he wrote afterwards. The other question to simply ask, though, of course, is uh, not what went wrong, but why, why are we asking if it was wrong? Um, this is two pages right here that go to the heart of this podcast of wondering how Homer takes out the garbage. How do you live and write poetry at the same time? How do you balance those things and keep the work good and keep your mind good? Um, at some point, as I've used the examples of uh, the huge outputs of Robert Lowell and Ted Hughes here, at some point you begin to make a column and some of the poetry goes on the side of this is great poetry. And some of the poets, poetry goes, much of it goes on the side of this was just what needed to be written because they felt compelled to keep writing poetry. Or Picasso uh, just doing 700 sketches of the same thing over the last three years of his life. Um, at some point it just becomes an impulse and you don't really know what to do with yourself. Um, we need to grant our creative people that allowance and just sort of... Uh, let fall by the wayside the stuff that really wasn't meant for us, that seems to have been meant simply for their peace of mind. And let's see what else we have here. And so uh, Jonathan Bates spends a good deal of time in his last chapter uh, justifying the subtitle to his book, The Poet Who Changed the World. And for example, he traces Wordsworth's love for the Lake District and wanting to preserve the landscape there to the American naturalist John Muir, who ended up uh, out west and leading to the American National Parks and all the rest of it, and a lot of other anecdotes of writers and thinkers who are very important to us now or who who were very important to where we have landed now intellectually and culturally and where Wordsworth stands uh, with them and how he changed their life and it's a very moving thing to see but the gist of it however the gist of it I think comes from a biography of Wordsworth that was written in 1881. This is 31 years after he died. And this is part of what the biography says. It's talking about his poem, uh, Lines Written Near Tintern Abbey. This is what it says. Uh, the essential spirit of the Lines Near Tintern Abbey was for practical purposes as new to mankind as the essential spirit of the Sermon on the Mount. Not the isolated expression of moral ideas but rather their fusion into a whole in one memorable personality is that which connects them forever with a single name. Therefore it is that Wordsworth is venerated, because that to so many men, indifferent it may be to literary or poetical effects as such, he has shown by the subtle intensity of his own emotion just how the contemplation of nature can be made a revealing agency like love or prayer an opening, if indeed there be any opening, into the transcendent world. And <laughs> Jonathan Bates sums that up by just saying this. Uh, Thirty years after his death, the poet from an obscure nook of northern England, and who in the first half of his life was mercilessly derided by critics, 
was now being compared to Jesus Christ. And that really tells you the story too, doesn't it? How this happens. Um, my whole thing in this podcast about how uh, all of these other people are getting attention, but I am not. Um, uh, all of these things that we think about that where we want instantaneous fame, instantaneous uh, notoriety, recognition, and all of that in 2023. We want it to happen right now. Uh, Wordsworth is a great example of how it actually works. Um, you you go through life having a poem like Tintern Abbey praised, certainly by some people, but also just uh, just torn down by other people. And 30 years after your death, it's compared to the Sermon on the Mount. This is the strange way of how things actually seem to work in the world. And I think that I will leave it there with Wordsworth. And I will just read one more poem from him. And we will say goodnight. Um, I do hope to do a separate episode just on his poetry. And actually, a separate episode just on this one poem at some point in the future. But I hope this has been an illuminating hour. Uh, Jonathan Bates' book is definitely worth reading for anyone who wants to know more about him. But this is just a small poem of his where he shows great power not talking about nature, but about his experience in the city, in London. In the prelude, there are just huge, wonderful uh, sort of phantasmagorias of Bartholomew's Fair and being a college student and being young in London and staying up all night and doing all of this stuff you'd never imagined Wordsworth ever did. Um, so you don't imagine him being a poet of the city. But in this poem, you see it very well and uh, in a strange way. I don't know if anyone else likes this poem. It's not mentioned once in Jonathan Bates' biography, whether to praise it or to uh, criticize it. This is, my, this is one of my favorite poems by anybody. And it was written, I believe, in 1807, not long after uh, Wordsworth and Coleridge had their initial uh, falling out. And so thank you all for listening. This is Wordsworth's poem called St. Paul's. Pressed with conflicting thoughts of love and fear, I parted from thee, friend, and took my way through the great city, pacing with an eye downcast, ears sleeping, and feet masterless that were sufficient guide unto themselves, and step by step went pensively. Now mark, not how my trouble was entirely hushed, that might not be, but how by sudden gift, gift of imagination's holy power, my soul in her uneasiness received an anchor of stability. It chanced that while I thus was pacing, I raised up my heavy eyes and instantly beheld, saw at a glance in that familiar spot, the visionary scene. A length of street laid open in its morning quietness, deep, hollow, unobstructed, vacant, smooth, and white with winter's purest white, as fair, as fresh, and spotless as he ever sheds on field or mountain. Moving form was none, save here and there a shadowy passenger, slow, shadowy, silent, dusky, and beyond, and high above this winding length of street, this noiseless and unpeopled avenue, pure, silent, solemn, beautiful, was seen the huge majestic temple of St. Paul in awful sequestration through a veil, through its own sacred veil of falling snow. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, 
You can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.